Light is not a proposition that you could consider or reject. Light is an inevitable reality that you cannot stop. Every single day at sunrise, light floods into our world and it's not here to negotiate. It's not here to start a dialogue with the darkness. Light, by its very nature, eradicates and destroys darkness. So if Christmas is a story about light meeting darkness, that means that Christmas is not a story about struggle. It's a story about victory. And that is the story of Advent, a story of comfort for God's people and conquest of the forces that oppress them. Next week, we've got a big day coming up. It's called Christmas. Merry Christmas. You've probably heard of it. But this week, I want to tell you about another special day that's coming up that often gets overshadowed by all the Christmas hype. It's called the winter solstice. It's the shortest day of the year, and it's on Thursday. On Thursday, the axis of planet Earth will be tilted as far out away from the warmth and the light of the sun and into the freezing darkness of space as it ever gets. But starting on Thursday, the earth is going to slowly start tilting back again into the warmth and the light of the sun. It's no mistake that we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ on this perfectly symbolic time of year, when the celestial dance of our own universe tells us the story of God, light destroying darkness. Every single day this winter, things have been getting a little bit darker and a little bit colder, but starting after Christmas, every single day gets a little bit warmer and a little bit brighter than the day before. For that reason, that's one of the reasons that light is a symbol of Christmas. It has been for thousands of years at Christmas time, lights symbolize it, and they still do today. And light is also a symbol of God himself. So, for centuries around the world, Christians have been lighting candles to help each other remember the story. So when the world is getting colder and darker around them, when it feels like evil and injustice and lies are taking over, the people of God... We never stop meeting together. We never stop singing together. And we never stop lighting candles and remembering Advent, the time when light first pierced into our dark world. And we pray together for the day that it comes again. So as I light some of these candles that we have here on stage, I want to take a moment of silence together. And I want you to think about and thank God for the light that he's brought into your own life. And also, let's have a quick time of prayer together. Ask God to continue to bring light into the world through you.
Today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 61, if you want to turn there. Actually, I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to actually turn there. We're going to have the words on the screen, but we're going to jump around a little bit in this chapter, so it might be helpful to follow along if you actually get it out and have it in front of you. Isaiah 61 is a poem, all 11 verses, that God wrote to his people through the prophet Isaiah about 500 years or so, five or 600 years before the first Christmas. Let's start at the beginning, and I'm going to kind of pause as we read through this to talk a little bit, but we're going to read all the way through the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, in verse 1, we see we're in the first person tense. Thinking back to your grammar classes, first person tense means somebody is talking to us. And I've highlighted in red here the words that show us that, me, anointed me, like there's a person doing the talking. If you recognize that word anointed, it might ring a bell because that's where we get the word Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, right? In Hebrew, the word Messiah um, means anointed one. And so what we have here at the very beginning of this poem is somebody is talking to us and that person identifies himself right away. The Lord has anointed me. So this is the Messiah who is talking to us. More on that in just a minute, but let's keep reading here about this Messiah. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I've highlighted some things in blue on this slide, and you're going to keep seeing blue highlights throughout, and I want to explain what that means. This poem has an audience. The Messiah, who I've highlighted in red, just track with me here. The Messiah is talking to an audience, and the audience is in blue. He's here. He's on a mission. He's been appointed to do something, and what it is the Messiah has to do is for these people in blue, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. He's got something he wants to do for them. He's going to free them. He's going to proclaim a message to them. And keep watching these people in blue as the poem goes on. Let's keep reading. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. So these people here get a job description. Look at these last two blue highlights. These brokenhearted, these prisoners that we've bound up and set free they get a job description. They're priests. They're ministers. And after this, they get a promise. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. And now here, as we enter the last part of this poem, God interjects and God speaks, and then the Messiah speaks again at the end. God says, for I, the Lord, love justice. 
I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And the Messiah jumps in to describe what's coming for them here at the end. I delight greatly in the Lord, he says. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. So in Isaiah chapter 61, we read this long poem from the Messiah speaking to his people about the year of the Lord's favor and what that means for us, what it is that he's going to do for us. This poem was written to a people in exile. The Israelites had been torn away from their homes and taken away to a foreign land. And this was written to give them hope in a time that felt hopeless. They were completely conquered. They were chained up and dragged away from their homes and everything they'd ever known. And as far as they knew, they had no hope of ever returning again. They were wondering whether their God was real, whether their God still loved them or cared about them enough to help. These people, the audience, of the poem that we just read, were begging for light, for light to enter into a world that had become so dark. Not only because they needed a comforter, like Dean was talking about last week, they needed a comforter, but they needed more than that. They needed a conqueror. Now, maybe you're reading through this and you're thinking about this idea of conquest and Israel in exile, and you're wondering, isn't this Christmas? What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Advent? I want to remind you of the first song we sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I love that song, and the very first verse, listen to the words that we sang together. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. That's a Christmas story. We've, we, we just sang a Christmas carol that's about bringing Israel back from the exile. Listen, saving Israel from exile is a Christmas story because salvation is a Christmas story. Yeah, the exile happened about five, 600 years before Jesus ever came to earth, but this is a passage about Jesus Christ. He's the one speaking here to these hopeless people, telling them, don't give up. I haven't forgotten you. I have a plan and you're part of it. And I'll tell you how I know that this is Jesus speaking. He said so. In Luke chapter 4, if you want to flip there, you can. Uh, I'll read it as well, but keep a finger in Isaiah 61 because we'll be back. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just started his ministry, right? In Luke chapter 2, we'll probably be reading a lot this week, you know, about the nativity. Well, right after that, Jesus starts his ministry, and the first sermon he ever preaches in Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah 61, the text we just read. And listen to what he says about it. I'm starting in verse 16 if you want to follow along. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he gives what I think might be the greatest sermon of all time. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he dropped the microphone. <laughs> Can you imagine being in a room, this, this scripture you've learned your whole life that your people have learned for centuries, and Jesus reads it, he sits down and he says, this Messiah guy who's coming to save everybody, it's me, I'm him, I just fulfilled it, you saw it, I'm here, let's go. What a moment, what a goosebumps kind of moment in this sermon. And so you would think they would be happy. You would think they would be excited. Some of you who turn to Luke 4 and have read ahead see where this goes. It does not go well. Jesus is at his hometown, remember? He's in Nazareth, the place where he grew up, in a synagogue with people who knew him. And so they say, no way, you're the Messiah. We know your parents. We know you. We saw you grow up here. You can't, there's no chance you're the Messiah. And he explains, no, I, I really am. They drive him out of town. They chase him away and they run him all the way to the edge of a cliff and they take him to a cliff and they're about to throw Jesus off of a cliff and kill him. This is like day one of his ministry. It's not going well. He gets away from them. It says he walks right through the crowd and escapes because his time had not yet come. When the time comes, he will submit to death, but that wasn't the time. But the point is, Jesus got up. He read this chapter that we just read, Isaiah 61, and they tried to kill him for it. From the beginning, the mission of Jesus Christ on earth is a story of a life or death endeavor. The stakes could not be higher. And that's because from the moment light started breaking into this kingdom of darkness, the darkness started trying to resist. The darkness started trying to fight back. It's just like in our own lives when we try to open our own hearts to the light of God and the darkness within us starts fighting back and trying to resist and trying to talk us out of it. So the story of Jesus is a story about love and hope and forgiveness and healing, but only because it's also a story about spiritual war, about fighting back, about piercing through the darkness, and ultimately about victory. It's like we sang earlier, one of my favorite lines of any Christmas song or church song ever. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Maybe you feel like in your own life, in your country, in your world, we're pining in sin and error. Just like when Isaiah wrote this, uh, in Jesus' time, Israel was again conquered by a foreign pagan government that had taken over their land. This time, instead of Babylon, Isaiah's audience, it was Rome. That was Jesus' audience. New empire, same old story. This pagan government has conquered the people of God. And again, Israel was not allowed to freely worship God in their own country in the way they believed. They couldn't govern themselves or pass laws according to the moral principles that they held dear in their hearts. They had people ruling over them who hated their own religion and their belief and despised the way of God in their society. And Jesus says, it's time to dust off the promises of Isaiah 61 and remind you what God is here to do. 
So let's start at the top in Isaiah 61, and I want to talk through the different things he says he's here to do, just so we know exactly what this mission is. Interestingly, there's seven different tasks that he lists that he's here to do, starting in verse 1. He says, I'm here, I'm on a mission, I was anointed to do seven different things. It's a story of creation, a story of recreation. So what's on the Messiah's checklist? Number one, proclaim good news to the poor. Number two, bind up the brokenhearted. Sounds good. Proclaim freedom for the captives and release the prisoners from darkness. Great. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay. That one takes me a little off guard. Maybe you too. Vengeance. Vengeance seems a little out of place on this list. You know, proclaiming good news, releasing the prisoners, and vengeance. Like it, it kind of, one of these things is not like the other a little bit. How is God going to release the prisoners from the darkness? How is he going to release the prisoners from darkness without turning on the lights? How is God going to proclaim freedom for the captives unless he does something about the captors? How is he going to break us out of these prisons without dealing with the prisons? For God to launch the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, for God to come and set everything right, first he's going to have to address everything that's wrong. That's where this vengeance comes in. That's why this vengeance idea, this day of the Lord, uh, it's a message of hope because if you have a captor, if you're a captive, somebody has to set you free. If God is going to set everything right, he's going to have to deal with everything that's wrong. The prophets a lot, and prophets including Isaiah, they get a bad rap because a lot of what they deal with is God's wrath and God's judgment and ideas like this day of vengeance against people and countries that have given themselves over to the darkness. The prophets came, and a lot of what they had to do was call out these leaders who were oppressing their people, or these governments who were mistreating the people they were supposed to govern. And you can see it right here. Look at uh, verse 8 of Isaiah 61. God says, I love justice. Great. And then he says, I hate robbery and wrongdoing and iniquity. Did you know that God hates things? Does that sit well with you? The idea of God having hatred in his heart. He says, I hate robbery and injustice. Or maybe your Bible translates that word wrongdoing or simply evil. God hates things that are evil. It's because he loves us. And so if he sees things holding us captive, if he sees darkness taking over our hearts, the right response, the righteous response from God is hatred of the, not of us, but of the evil that is hurting us and holding us back and tearing us away from him. God says, I hate wrongdoing. I hate robbery. I hate evil. And when you hate something, you do something about it. When we see the evil and the injustice in our world marshaled against us and our families and our people and the people of God and our responses, ah, somebody ought to do something about that. Man, I'm sure glad that's not my problem. We're not hating the things that God hates. We're not acting like God acts. We're not acting like light acts when it encounters darkness. Light doesn't negotiate. It illuminates. And that's what we see here from God. Items five and six and seven on the checklist here. Um, Comforting those who mourn, providing for those who grieve, and then take a look at the final thing that he's here to do. Item number seven, on the Messiah's checklist. It's very specific. It's very poetic. He says, I'm going to crown these people that I've set free with beauty instead of ashes, with the oil of joy instead of mourning, and garments of praise instead of despair. 
Now, if you were reading this and the original audience was hearing this, they would know exactly what that meant right away. These symbols are a little bit more foreign to us, but when you talk about anointing somebody with oil and giving them new clothes, the Jewish audience of this poem would have said, oh, so we're making new priests. They would have known immediately that this is talking about priests. And verse 6 confirms it. If you look at verse 6, he says, I'm going to make you priests. You will be called priests of the Lord. And that explains what's talking about in verse 5 and 6 when it says, other people are going to shepherd your flocks, you're going to feed on the wealth of nations. That's what priests do. God says the priests are allowed to live off of the generosity of the people. So when he creates us to be priests, that explains what those verses are talking about. Priests of the Lord. What's going on here? Well, remember at the end of the poem, in verse 10 and 11, where God and the Messiah talk and they sort of recap the mission of what's going on, God says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with these people when I set them free. And Jesus points out in verse 10 that God's given him new clothes too. Did you notice that? He says, I rejoice in God because he's clothed me in garments of salvation. He's robed me in righteousness. He's clothed me both like a bridegroom and like a bride. The complete picture, the entire wedding party, Jesus has become and is going to become as Messiah the ultimate God-ordained priest for time everlasting. And that's our model. But look what happens here. We also are getting anointed. Jesus has been anointed. He's been renamed and reclothed, but he's not stopping there. He's going to anoint us. He's going to give us these new garments and call us priests of the Lord, deploying us alongside him in the spiritual war that he's launching against the darkness of this world. This is the part where we come into the story of Advent. See, Advent starts with Jesus Christ coming into this world as Messiah, but it was never supposed to end that way. It's still going on today. The Messiah is taking anointing oil and new garments, and he's duplicating himself in us. He's spreading his love and his power and his mission to the captives that he has set free, sending them out into this world. And what's the mission? Look at verse 4. He explains exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing. I mean, the thing's on his checklist as well, but look at verse 4. These recently freed captives who God has anointed, they're his new priests, just like his son Jesus, and they're charged with doing something. He says they're charged to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They, these people, are going to renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. For Israel... A nation in captivity, thousands of miles away from their home, imagining they're thinking back to their own hometowns that are probably crumbling into ruin. They're thinking of their own culture and way of life that's slowly being eroded and forgotten. This would have had a literal meaning for them easily. We're supposed to go back and we're literally going to rebuild ancient ruins. We're actually going to rebuild the cities that have been devastated. What does it mean for us? What does it make you think of that God has anointed you to restore places long devastated? How does it make you feel that God set you free from sin and darkness so that you could renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations? Look around at this world we live in. You don't have to leave this country to find places long devastated, to find cities crying out for renewal broken-hearted people who are in such desperate need of some good news. People in this world who are completely held captive by lies, 
that needs to be set free in the truth of God. Darkness covering so many hearts, leaving people desperate and afraid and hopeless. I look at my own generation and I can't help but resonate with the idea of Israel in exile. A culture moving a thousand miles away from the moral law of God, leaving behind ruined cities, leaving devastated lives in its wake, broken-hearted people who've lost all sense of who they are or who they're supposed to be. No memory of a time that they lived in a land where God was welcomed and his law was loved. Isaiah 61 is an Advent passage because it's about new beginnings. God is proclaiming to his people and to us this morning that just like he brought Israel back and didn't forget about them, he gave them hope and he gave them a purpose and he's gonna do the same thing for us. He won't forget us or leave us behind in the darkness of our lives or in this world. He hates the evil and the darkness that is binding us and he wants to set us free. God does not look the other way when he encounters evil, just like light doesn't look the other way when it encounters darkness. We've been anointed, we've been reclothed, and we've been recreated. So we can't look the other way either. Christmas is a time of comfort for the prisoner, for the brokenhearted, because God has come into this world, but it's also a time of conquest against evil and darkness because God has come into this world. I want to finish by telling you a Christmas story, my favorite Christmas story ever, and hopefully you'll love it too. Uh, my favorite Christmas story, except for the real one about Jesus, my, I guess my second favorite Christmas story. And I think this story is helpful because it'll really shed some light on what I think an image of Advent, Advent can be for us. December 25th, 1776. The American Revolution was on the brink of collapse. This continental army who had had the nerve to declare independence and start a revolution because of the ideas they believed in was losing the war. Under the General George Washington, they'd lost the state of New York, they'd retreated into Pennsylvania, and the morale of the people was at rock bottom and it couldn't be lower. They were ready to give up. 90% of the army had deserted or died so far and the rest of the men were starving, they were freezing, and worst of all, they weren't getting paid. George Washington knew right around Christmas that all of the enlistments of the troops he had left were gonna expire in the new year. They only went through December 31st. And so he knew if he couldn't turn this war around by 1777, all of his men would leave. They would quit, they would go home, he'd lose his army and America would lose the revolution. So Washington made a plan that would change the course of the revolution and of history. In the dead of night, on Christmas of 1776, George Washington, he took the entire continental army of 2,400 men to the banks of the icy Delaware River. You might remember this story from all the way back in history class. They crossed the river. It started to rain, and as the temperature plummeted, it started to sleet, and then it started to snow on them. And these men in these boats were crossing the Delaware River in pitch black in the middle of the night, fending off ice flows that could have destroyed the little boats that they were in. Because of the freezing storm, they finished crossing not at midnight like they had planned, but actually at three o'clock in the morning, the entire army got across the river. There was another force crossing downriver to help. They couldn't make it because of the ice, but Washington said, we're going on anyway. We have to win this battle. And so they started at four o'clock in the morning, 
a 10-mile march through the snow to the city of Trenton to attack them. The men had no uniforms. A lot of them didn't have boots, and a lot of them didn't even have shoes. They wrapped their feet in rags and kept marching through the snow, so the army's trail behind them in the frozen mud was marked by bloody footprints of the men's bare feet. Washington spent the night riding up and up and down the line, encouraging his men so that they wouldn't give up. And when they learned that the snow was ruining their gunpowder, so that they wouldn't even have gunpowder when they got there, he told them, fix the bayonets to your rifles. We can't turn back. When they reached the town, the army split up to attack from both sides. And to make sure they could still identify each other when the fighting started, they established a password that they would use. Victory or death. The ragged Americans arrived at Trenton, just after sunrise. And the gamble had paid off. The enemy was caught completely unaware, asleep in their beds. Because an attack across the frozen river during a snowstorm through an all-night march was completely impossible, and nobody thought anyone could do it. Such an act of courage and resilience was unfathomable to an enemy who felt safe under the cover of darkness. But as the sunrise flooded over the horizon, the surprise attack was already unstoppable. Washington rode first in front of his men straight into the line of fire as the enemy started shooting. They invaded the town. They cut off the escape. The Americans uh, began taking the city house by house, and slowly the enemy troops fell back, broke, and scattered. When the smoke cleared, Washington's army had captured about 900 enemy soldiers and suffered only five casualties. They got the weapons and supplies and the food they needed to keep fighting the war. They won the admiration of the watching world, but they got something much more important than all that. Hope. After the Battle of Trenton, after that incredible fight, the men, when their enlistments expired, rejoined the army even though they weren't getting paid because they had something to believe in and civilians from around the country started to join and swell the ranks of the army so that they could fight back. And after the Battle of Trenton, after the hope that this gave, Washington started this long journey to eventually win the war in total victory. I think that this Christmas story that's rooted in our country, I think this story is helpful to understand the story of Advent. When Jesus Christ was born on this earth 2,000 years ago, the enemy was confident and completely caught off guard. The night was freezing and pitch black. The enemy held the earth in darkness and could not be challenged. That darkness was so strong. The night was so cold. The people's hearts were captive. They were prisoners who could not be set free. An attack seemed impossible. It was unfathomable that God himself would do what it took to set these people free by coming down in human form, submitting to death at the hands of his own creation to save these people. And that's exactly what he did. Because that's what light does when it encounters darkness. It shines. That's what people do when they have hope. They fight back. This Christmas, through the words of the prophet centuries ago, and those words echoing here today, Jesus is inviting us to join him in this Advent mission, in this fearless, courageous attack on the outposts of the enemy in our world. This spiritual war that he launched landing here 2,000 years ago at Advent, rending the heavens to let the light pour through, continues today. He's inviting us to join. 
He's anointing us to this mission to free the captives, to proclaim the truth, to comfort the brokenhearted, to restore devastated lives. It's our mission to join him in spreading this light. Let's pray. God, we thank you for piercing the darkness of our world with your holy light. We thank you for never settling with the darkness in our own hearts, but always bringing light to illuminate, to set us free. The light of your glory, the light of your holiness, the light of your truth. God, I pray that you give us all the courage to join you in the mission of Advent, that you give us the courage to join with you in the fight against the darkness of this world. We thank you for your grace and for your love and for your son. In his name, amen.